Georgia's DBHDD is warning all Georgians that half of all opioid deaths happen at home when people take an oxy or a perk with a glass of alcohol for stress or to sleep. Learn more about protecting families from opioid overdoses at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's time for another edition of Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Thank you so much for joining us for our show today. Um, As we discussed for the last couple of days, yesterday was a crossover day at the Capitol, the day when, at least ostensibly, uh, if a bill hasn't passed one uh, body, either the Senate or the House, it is dead for the session. But as we've also said, uh, there are all sorts of tricks that uh, people could employ to get measures that didn't make it through crossover day passed uh, at a later point. Maybe we'll talk about just what that means exactly, because we've mentioned it a number of times already. Uh, We have a panel of political journalists who are on top of everything going on down at the Capitol. So let's get right to that now. Of course, it's Wednesday, which means my partner is Greg Bluestein, political reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Um, and uh, analyst for uh, NBC News uh, these days as well. Plus, Greg, next Tuesday, you're less than a week away from the official launch of Flipped, your book, highly anticipated book, about the uh, 2020 Georgia elections. You must be getting more and more excited as the days go by. Oh, I can't (laughs) wait. spent a lot of part of yesterday getting ready for it. Uh, There'll be a lot of stuff this weekend, and of course, You'll be helping me out on the big Atlanta launch on next Thursday at the MJCCA. Yeah, the uh, Jewish community, uh, Marcus Jewish Community Center. It's, that that event sold out, so we don't want to give people an expectation they can still get tickets to it. You're a very popular guy among that crowd at the MJCC, <laughs> Greg Bluestein. Um, we're joined by Riley Bunch, public policy reporter. For GPB News, Riley, you were up late last night covering crossover day. The House, I think, went until, what, 11 o'clock or so last night, while the Senate uh, left a little earlier, sometime around dinner time, right? Yeah, the Senate usually gets out a little bit earlier than the House just because of scale. <laughs> but it wasn't too late of a night. It was still a late night. Oh, don't get me wrong. But it was a little bit, you know, unexpected surprise to get out before midnight. Um, Your colleague, Stephen Fowler, GPB political reporter, is with us as well. Um, And uh, Stephen, in addition to his work on GPB uh, radio um, and on the website, uh, also is the host of Battleground Ballot Box, his podcast on elections. How are you today, Stephen? Uh, Awake, mostly. Uh, Riley and I (laughs) recorded this week's podcast last night in the top floor of the Capitol, so you should be able to hear that soon and all the echoing and dinging in the background. So uh, looking forward to talking more about Crossover Day. Uh, And we will do that in a minute. Uh, But first, let me introduce Raul Bali, who is political reporter for WABE. Uh, Raul, you were there late last night as well, I think. Yes, I was. Uh, I didn't get invited to that podcast party with with Riley or Stephen, though. But uh, it, you know, the, the the one thing we all have talked about is it it was it wasn't as long of a night, and it wasn't as crazy as as, as past crossovers. Um, well, let's get right to it, Greg Bluestein. Let's talk about several of the bills that have gotten a lot of attention 
that needed to get through last night. Um, one being, of course, this um, kind of sweeping new legislation that would once again make changes in the election process in Georgia. Um, that bill cleared. Uh, it did get through crossover day and so remains alive. What, In your opinion, Greg, and I'll get everybody else in, what are the uh, elements of that bill that have caused some controversy? Well, for one, it empowers GBI investigators um, to pursue fraud allegations. It gives the GBI uh, more leeway to, to, to take on these kinds of sort of cases, restricts, limits nonprofit funding, um, and it allows public ballot inspections of paper ballots. And I think that last part is what the most controversial. That is, or one of the more controversial parts. I think really, uh, even though we had heard rumblings about this for weeks, I mean, for weeks, really since the start of session, I think what caught some of the activists off guard uh, and some voting rights advocates was that at the beginning of the session, we heard from Lieutenant Governor Duncan, Governor Kemp, Speaker Ralston, all saying that they had no appetite to revisit election laws. Um, you know, as Kemp said, hey, we already are ranked, uh, you know, the toughest voter integrity state in the nation by a conservative uh, advocacy group. Um, and so to see this come up literally last week, right, it was first introduced just a few days ago, just a few days before this key deadline, um, really unnerved a lot of these voting rights advocates. And they've launched, uh, led by Fair, Fair Fight, which was Stacey Abrams' founded uh, political organization, they, they've launched a seven-figure campaign to try to energize voters. Uh, liberal voters against these changes, even though they are, if they pass the Senate, they are certain to be signed by Governor Kemp into law. Um, Stephen, uh, let's take a couple of the things that Greg mentioned and break them down a little bit. Uh, uh, first of all, he pointed out that this public exp- uh, inspection, the right for the public to inspect actual physical ballots, is making some people very uneasy. Um, partly because of a chain of custody issue, a concern about, you know, we we already saw in 2020 people who felt there was fraud in the Georgia election uh, claim that ballots were being mishandled by election officials and the like. And now this bill will allow the public to actually have the physical ballots in their possession. I mean, they can't take them away from uh, where they're being kept. Nevertheless, there's concerns about that and concerns that this is just going to once again gum up the works, slow down certification, raise more questions about the validity of an election. Have I got that about right? Yeah. So I, I would say this bill, chain of custody is really the biggest word in this bill. Um, most of the changes that are proposed kind of deal with the behind the scenes elections process. It doesn't necessarily affect the everyday voter and their voting experience, like a lot of what SB 202 did. But the chain of custody element, uh, well, one, it adds a lot more paperwork to the absentee voting process and other things for local officials. Basically, anytime a ballot is touched by a human, lawmakers want there to be paperwork documenting who touched it and when, where, why, and how. Um, this ballot inspection part is, uh, it, it's changed a little bit from what was maybe originally proposed But this would propose, instead of the ballots being under seal in the the clerk of the court's office and the courts for two years after the election is done, they would still be with the clerk of the court, but not be sealed. So people could file an open records request and ask to see the paper ballots that are from the election. And uh, there are rules in this bill. There would have to be rules made by the state election board. But potentially, it would be very cost prohibitive. And also, the clerk of the court would still have to be the ones to touch and hold the ballot. 
So it's not going to be like a cyber ninja Arizona type deal where people are looking at magnifying glasses and trying to look at the <laughs> <Right>. ballots. But <laughs> it could be a way because the legislature did make ballot images open records last year. It could be a way in theory, you could make the case. It could be a way to satisfy people's claims about the election results. But on the other hand, it does keep the door open for a lot of these conspiracies to take root uh, about the ballots. Uh, Raul, there is also concern among some that uh, giving GBI uh, more power to uh, jump in on uh, questions about uh, 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 possible election issues, problems, fraud, whatever, um, is um, it's um, taking away the powers that the Secretary of State's office has always had to investigate these matters. Um, and uh, there are some people who fear that it is going to uh, intimidate some voters who are nervous that law enforcement is going to have an opportunity to come in and uh, get involved in disputes over their ballot, whatever. Talk about that a little. The specific point that that I've heard brought up is the fact that the GBI director is appointed by the governor. And so yeah. that's the connection that that when, when I've asked, okay, so what's the concern about the GBI? That's the issue that's brought up. And, and, and to explain to the audience of what's really changing is right now the GBI, they have to be called in, whether it's by um, a, a local government, a, a lo- another law enforcement body. This gives them, and this was the idea that was first kind of laid out by the speaker before the session, was the idea of original jurisdiction where GBI Director uh, Vic Reynolds or, or the GBI in general can just step in when they, when they see an issue. Uh, on an election. So that's the, the biggest concern I hear is around the idea that this is a government governor employee team making this decision. Riley? You know, I think regardless of the measures in the bill, we kind of have to take it back to the political wheelings and dealings of session, right? You know, Greg mentioned in the beginning that this kind of came up out of nowhere and sessions a lot of the the magicians act. You look over here while they're doing something <laughs> stage, right? <laughs> So even though Governor Kemp, uh, Lieutenant Governor Ralston all said that they didn't want these wide sweeping changes, you got to think about the the position that the Republican, those like Republicans, the Republican Party, especially Governor Kemp, are in right now. They have to do something to satisfy the portion of their base that is, you know, spreads these widespread claims of voter fraud. It would look bad for them if they went into this session and didn't take up voting again. On the other side, it does give Democrats kind of a little bit more fuel to the fire, energize their base more because it's like, look, the Republicans already did this huge change last session and they're coming back again. So I think there's there's a lot of overarching themes to this legislation, despite what's in the bill. Greg, why don't you go give us final word on, on this uh, particular measure? I like Riley's description of the legislature as a magician's act. I, I love that. Um, <laughs> you know, this is this will become a motivating tool for Democrats for sure. Um, and Riley's right. I mean, Governor Kemp has to sign this. If he doesn't sign it, then it will become a wedge issue that David Perdue will use, saying that the governor won't sign this, this legislation and, and, and he that he would, right? And and. Brian Kemp is trying to take everything he possibly can off the table beyond Trump, because we already know where, where Trump stands on that race, but everything else off the table for David Perdue to, to, to outflank him on the right. Um, but Democrats are going to use this, too. I'm surprised, in a sense, that, that Stacey Abrams hasn't jumped on this issue more aggressively. Um, I asked her for comment um, right when I saw this bill pop up, and, and you know they, they're, they're 
being a little more tight-lipped than maybe they would have been in 2018 about this legislation. But I wouldn't be surprised to hear her opine on this soon. And, and certainly her allies and, and, and supporters um, from Fair Fight, the New Georgia Project, and other, uh, the constellation of advocacy groups that sort of surround Stacey Abrams has already brought this up and said that this will be a mo- major motivating factor for, for voters in November. Greg, so let me, let me, if you don't mind, ask you to comment on something I've been thinking about in terms of this. Um, we, as we said earlier, uh, uh, Republican leaders had expressed very little interest in new election uh, measures this session, except for Ralston saying he did want GBI to have more power in lo- investigating uh, election issues. Um, and as you've pointed out, and you and Riley, now that it's, it's there, the governor's going to have to sign it. But, but I wonder if one of the reasons that um, Republicans were not eager to have this uh, come forward this session is they recognize it is as much uh, it has as much potential to energize Democrats as it does their own base in primary elections. Yes, I mean this is the kind of issue the Abrams folks and the other voting rights groups say they're going to spend money to fight this bill. They know they can't stop it, but yeah. but everything they do to fight it c- continues to raise it as a major issue that they believe will energize their own voters. Does that make sense? It does. Look, I mean. Republicans have spent the last year saying that SB 202, the election law that was signed signed last year, was the toughest voter integrity bill in the nation. And now they're making more changes to it, right? So they're in this weird position of saying they need to make even more changes to the bill that they passed last year. And look, there are Republicans who are also worried about um, the impact of these bills um, on their own electorate, right, on on GOP voters. There's going to be voter confusion already with redistricting people living in new congressional and state legislative districts. Um, and, and the new limits on absentee ballot um, uh, uh, applications, uh, the new tighter deadlines, uh, the, the photo ID requirements, of course, you know, they, they affect voters for both parties. So um, I've talked to many privately who say that they don't want to revisit this hot button issue, even if it's more limited changes than we saw in 2021. Okay, I, I'd like to, I want to keep moving because um, I want to talk about some of the other measures that uh, uh, succeeded last night. And we'll have time to talk about the election bill as it moves forward. Uh, Raul, let me turn to a, another bill that made it last night that was quite, has been controversial. Democrats don't like it. And that's this bill that is going to crack down on protests, the kind of street protests that we saw in the summer of 2020, uh, by Black Lives Matter and and their supporters, and uh, it has a number of provisions uh, that um, are, are very controversial. Talk to us a little bit about what this bill does. So Senate Bill 171, kind of the key to it is if if there's any kind of protest, and and when they mean any kind of protest, we're talking about two or more that are you know considered offensive or or loud. If, if a crime happens within that, it's an unper- there's no permit with the rat rally, the penalties are higher. For example, blocking a highway, blocking a street, or if someone gets hurt, having higher penalties. The big argument around this for those who are against it is First Amendment, is, is you are targeting these penalties at people who are protesting. Because, of course, every protest, it, there's not a permit with every march and every protest. Some of them just happen organically. Some of them are, are planned. And look, I, we've covered things at the state capitol who didn't have a permit. 
the rally goes on and, and you move on. So that's the big argument by opponents is this, this is an attack on the First Amendment. Uh, my colleague, Sam Gringlass, has also pointed out, he's, he's done some closer reporting, that, that's the, that other proposals like this have been knocked down. Stephen? Yeah, I mean, the, the bill sponsor, State Senator Randy Robertson, the former law enforcement officer, and he said the purpose of this bill, uh, which has been introduced various times in various years, is part of a reaction to, for example, in the city of Atlanta, when there were protests that basically uh, took over a part of town where uh, there was a Wendy's restaurant and things, and he said that the city of Atlanta didn't do enough and they stood down public safety responders from responding to that area. And so part of this bill would also find ways to hold city governments and county governments liable for if there's a, you know, massive vandalism that happens or if they don't send in law enforcement to break up something that gets out of hand. And so, you know, he, he's interested with this bill. Uh, you know, he says it doesn't violate your First Amendment. He makes it, he says this makes it where if you want to go down the street and protest, then you have the right to protest your government or protest injustice. I'm here for that. But he said this bill is needed to crack down on what goes around on the margins of some of these big protests that happen. And he said that governments aren't doing enough to stop those things. Riley? Well, I think Stephen pointed out a really interesting provision in the bill is this kind of civil penalty for cities and counties that aren't keeping these kinds of things under control. And, it, and it, it, that's, that's a big, got a big pushback from these municipalities, right, which is um, a really big lobbying factor in the Georgia state legislature. So the fact that this bill still moves forward, you know, it, it shows that it does have the majority support to move forward and kind of push past that, the cities and counties not wanting it. But I think the other important thing to mention is it does fall into this kind of underlying theme that we're seeing throughout session as well, which is the Atlanta boogeyman, right? And we talk about that so much on this show. We talk about all the time in the state legislature, but it's, you know, these bills that have kind of this underlying targeted Atlanta for things that rural Republican lawmakers say they have not done enough of or they haven't done right, right? So um, I think that's important to mention with this bill as well. Um, we're going to watch how that moves uh, uh, forward. Um, Greg, I want to take what, up one more measure. I, it, I'm gonna, I'll tell you what we're going to do. Uh, there, for a long time now, the bills that are going to finally uh, uh, get medical marijuana production moving forward uh, here in Georgia, I mean, we know the legislature some time ago now uh, uh, passed legislation that would make it legal for families that need uh, medical marijuana to get it, but they've still had no way to get it in the state legally. We're, there are a couple of bills that have now moved forward. We'll talk about those on another show because I think they're going to take some time to really uh, dig into a bit. So, Greg, I'd like to move to another uh, a couple of measures that I think are interesting. One, pay raises for legislature, legislators made it through this session, but so did what I thought of as a surprise bill, and maybe you all saw it coming, I didn't, and that's a measure uh, that would uh, uh, call for a constitutional amendment making the terms of uh, state senators not just two years, but four years. Um, talk to us a little about, first let's talk about the uh, first one, uh, the first uh, uh, thing, the pay raises, Greg. 
Yeah, well, it comes to pay raises, and also this legislation also includes a pension raise, which is a, a major part yeah. of it. But lawmakers have been advocating for a long time, um, privately, and then more recently, louder publicly for pay raises, because um, I think it's about $17,000 a year um, is the annual pay that lawmakers get. But look, you know, um, we're all working more than 40 hours a week covering the session. Uh, they, most of them at least, are certainly working even more than that when it comes to their constituent services, the committee meetings, all the different things that they're handling, and they're saying they're long overdue, especially for those um, lawmakers in more rural areas that are driving three, four hours um, just to get to Atlanta and then go back home. Um, and, and, you know, look, they say it's also part of a, um, a block on, on, you know, it's, it's allowing just mostly wealthy, uh, more whiter more fluent law, uh, candidates run for office rather than opening it up to more people who, um, you know, who aren't independently wealthy, who can't afford uh, to take off, you know, three or four months a year from their private sector jobs. So that is a part of it. And of course, the pension is part of it. But when it comes to these term limits, I guess you can look at that in part in the same way, because um, Georgia senators, of course, love the idea that they won't have to consistently, constantly be running for re-election because it's just like in the U.S. House, the moment a state legislature gets elected, even if they're in a safe district, um, politically safe district, they are already running for their next term. They're already looking over their shoulders for primary opponents or for opponents from, from another party. Uh, it is a constant uh, constant theme. You know, it's very rare that an incumbent gets, gets defeated, um, but it still happens. And senators, you know, want to give themselves a little bit more wiggle room this is not going to get a great hearing in the House. Uh, Georgia House lawmakers <laughs> that I've talked to are very skeptical of this, to say the least. But at least it kind of put down a marker uh, really early in this session, uh, relatively early in the session, I should say. Uh, and something we, we might even see come up next year or the year after that again. Well, yeah, but Riley, if we're going to expand uh, terms from two years to four, it's going to have to happen on both sides of the aisle. I mean, yeah. you know, if, if you're a House member who has to fa- face reelection every two years, the last thing you want is to come into a session uh, and, and have to deal with members across the building in the Senate who are safe in four-year terms and have a certain amount of leverage that you don't really have. Yeah. So it's either going to have to be all or nothing, Riley. Well, I will just go back to one thing the lieutenant governor said after that bill passed in the Senate. He said, quote, we'll see what the House has, has to say about it, because <laughs> it, it is true. You know, the, the chambers already have kind of this back and forth, and they're not going to make a significant change like that if the other doesn't get some type of, you know, give back. And one thing I will also say is in the Senate, because there are less lawmakers I, we are seeing re-election campaigns and election campaigns a little bit more on full display than we see in the House, right? So it, it's kind of this this mix of you see the campaign on the Senate floor, I would say more than you see it on the House floor. So extending this year to this these term limits, you know, it, it plays into that whole kind of using the legislature as your campaign spot. Raul? I, I do think... In the end, the deal is going to be the pay raise that House members want, they'll get, and the extended terms that the senators want, they'll get. And I think that's going to be the deal in the end of how this gets done, because the pay raise has had such a struggle in the Senate. And for us, it's obvious that the House isn't going to jump at extending Senate terms. I think that's what the deal is going to look like in the end. Uh, interesting. Fascinating. Stephen, 
Um, Patricia Murphy published a piece this morning about pay raises uh, that I thought was terrific. In fact, we'll talk to her about it when she's on the show on Friday. But let's talk about it now for a minute. Um, She's all for pay raises for legislators, partly for the reasons that Greg uh, described. Uh, The the pay is so low that unless you can afford to spend uh, months at the Capitol during the session and then all the time out of session that you need to attend to your job— uh, but we all, here's another thing that I think all of us who have spent time covering uh, elected officials know. Um, despite the fact that we find reasons to criticize them for their uh, actions sometimes, uh, despite the fact that uh, there are people who feel they're almost uh, people who are kind of on the dole <laughs> because they don't deserve the pay they get, um, the fact of the matter is these people work really hard. And we see that, Stephen. We see how, how hard they work. And they're not, the state legislators with $17,000 plus, just not a whole lot of money for a job that requires an enormous amount of their time and energy and concentration. Right. And Patricia and I were talking about this uh, the other night before her column published that there are a number of lawmakers that we are losing this year that are either retiring or, in the case of Dean of the House Calvin Smyrie, is going to become an ambassador, that the level of work of some of these people that puts in, uh, like, for example, the appropriations chairman, you know, they get basically the same salary as everyone else, but they are tasked with figuring out how to spend $30 billion of money that affects 10 million Georgians. And it's something that in talking to House Appropriations Chairman Terry England before, you know, it's a full-time job for him that he works with the full-time House Budget and Research Office and he works with the governor's office and he works with the Office of Planning and Budget. And, you know, that's a lot for one person to do for $17,000 and a lot of angry emails when something doesn't get included. And so (laughs) it it does, you know, it, it does preclude certain types of people from serving in the legislature, like you mentioned, you know, you see a lot of lawyers and you see a lot of people that uh, have the time and space and flexibility to do it, but it leaves out a lot of Georgians from uh, feeling like they're represented in the legislature. And it's not necessarily a case of, you know, we're greedy lawmakers and we want to make a lot of money because nobody goes into being a state representative or a state senator to get rich. But it does, you know, as we think about Georgia and Georgia growing into a major political and economic player in the country, I think, you know, it's certainly a fair question to talk about compensation and uh, how the legislature works when we think about the more and more responsibilities that lawmakers are tasked with doing in essentially a three-month window. Yeah. Thank you for, uh, for, for all of that. Um, Greg, before we take a break, uh, well, let's explain to listeners what I mean when I've said a couple times on the show in the last couple of days, yes, crossover day, we make a lot out of it in the media. It's a, you know, it's, it's a do or die day. But I've said over and over again, not really. What do I mean by that, Greg? <laughs> yeah, um, it is not. It, it is a key deadline, but it's not a make or break day because legislation that doesn't survive, that didn't pass yesterday or in the days before, could still be revised, clumped on to other measures that did, right? And so literally bills that passed the House could be completely gutted and inserted with language from bills that didn't pass earlier on. And I think the, um, the horse racing um, legislation 
uh, is a perfect example of that. We saw uh, that fail to meet constitutional, the two-thirds of uh, vote in the Senate required to get a constitutional amendment passed. It will almost certainly come back up. And near, near the very end, there was a, a really desperate push to try to get um, two or three extra votes um, uh, last night. It didn't work out the way that Jeff Mullis, the sponsor, wanted to, to, how, how he wanted it to go. Um, he will almost certainly take House legislation that has already passed involving online betting um, or, you know, any other legislation that deals with this code section and put that language in it in the Senate version. So um, that's just one example of the ways that lawmakers can still push their priorities, which is why it's hard to say anything is dead until that final gavel is banged. And, and Riley, one of the things that keeps uh, Capitol reporters on their toes as the session comes to a close that last day is to see when an amendment suddenly appears that essentially takes a bill that has already been killed, has already failed to get uh, through Passover Day, and they add it to another bill at the last minute. At that moment, it becomes fascinating because it is then uh, a decision has to be made whether the amendment is what they call germane. Does it have a relationship to the bill they're talking? And that's just some of the games that are really fascinating for those of us who've spent a lot of time covering the Capitol to watch play out. Games that could, in many cases, have significant impact on the people of the state. Yeah, and I would say that this is one of the reasons why you like to make friends as a reporter and make make relationships (laughs) with people. Because when amendments pop up that so late, or they're, they're offered on the floor, we didn't have them. You know, we don't have those amendments. They are not given to us. We, they're not sitting on the table for reporters to come by and pick up. Sometimes bills will come back completely revised. They have different numbers on top, and you have to make sure the bill you're looking at matches with the bill number that lawmakers are looking at. So it really is just kind of papers flying, and that's when you make, you know, call lawmakers, you know, and ask for the amendments and things like that. So it really is a, a watching game. Okay, let's get to our first break of the show and come back and talk about some campaigning that's already started in full swing uh, in the elections. Uh, You're listening to Political Rewind. Greg Bluestein, Raul Bali, um, Riley Bunch, and Stephen Fowler join us today. Four political journalists who covered the session and are covering the campaigns that have really now uh, uh, started with great energy since uh, uh, qualifying ended. Uh, we've got uh, Stacey Abrams on the air with her first commercials. We've got Abrams and Kemp both on statewide tours getting the message out. David Perdue heads to Mar-a-Lago for his big fundraiser with uh, uh, Donald Trump. And Trump comes in uh, late next week on behalf of Perdue and the other uh, Republicans uh, that he has uh, endorsed. So things are really moving forward. And I want to talk about him a bit. Uh, Greg Bluestein, uh, let's start with um, Stacey Abrams. She uh, uh, this week is on a tour that she um, uh, made a very specific decision on a first uh, a place to begin that tour. Cuthbert, Georgia. Why Cuthbert? Uh, she stood directly in front of a hospital down in southwest Georgia, in that rural area in down mm-hmm. southwest Georgia, that had been that was closed due to financial struggles um, at the start, really at the start of the pandemic. It's a hospitals that we have covered extensively in the AJC. It struggles. Uh, even a federal infusion of relief dollars didn't help it stave off financial ruin. 
And, you know, it is another indication of the fact that Stacey Abrams is building this campaign. There's a lot of issues, of course, but she's building this campaign around Medicaid expansion in a way that, um, you know, she obviously focused on it in 2018. Jason Carter focused on it in 2014. This has been a staple of Democratic campaigns for governor, but she is highlighting it in a way that we haven't really seen before um, in that, you know, now that we're still grappling with the, the ongoing pandemic, she's hoping that a focus on public health um, and, the, frankly, the popularity of Medicaid expansion. And we've had polls in the AJC and we've seen polls elsewhere that showed that nearly three quarters of Georgia voters expanding Medicaid. This is a sort of bipartisan issue, but it's still deeply unpopular with uh, a segment of the conservative base, which is why Governor Kemp and David Perdue both oppose it. But uh, this is something that she'll continue to campaign on. And without a liberal challenger, she drew uh, no Democratic challengers. She doesn't have to worry about trying to shore up the base. And even if she had drawn a liberal challenger, she would have been the overwhelming favorite. So she can speak to the middle, speak to this issue in a way um, that she maybe couldn't have as easily in 2018. Uh, Stephen, one of the quotes from Abrams uh, out on the road is this, Medicaid expansion isn't just a tagline, it's the biggest economic development project in Georgia history, which is a different way of framing it. It's not just about, yes, access to health care, affordable health care for all, it's also good for the economy, Stephen. Right. And so Riley and I were down in Cuthbert for the first stop on Monday, and I followed her to a stop in Warner Robins before the rally in Atlanta. And her argument about Medicaid expansion as a driver of the economy was something that she hit at all three stops. You know, in Cuthbert, there were some residents there that were asking about roads and needing road repair. And so Abrams said that that could be solved by expanding Medicaid because the local government is paying for people that don't have health insurance that can't afford to pay for the health care bills. So they're taking taxpayer money that could have been used for expanding roads and paving things to pay for health care that the state could be paying for if they accepted the federal dollar. So really, everything does go back to Medicaid expansion for Abrams. And she's been able to take really a wide range of other issues and show how mm-hmm. access to health care is. Uh, influences those things. And so I would expect her to continue to make those calls, whether she's, I think she's in Midway and Augusta and Athens and other places this week, to tie in Medicaid expansion to seemingly unrelated government policies. Raul, uh, 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 she was also in uh, this uh, first part of the swing, very tough on Governor Kemp in terms especially of COVID. Uh, She said he was either too inept or too lazy to uh, uh, impose the kind of uh, restrictions, uh, the kind of mitigation uh, uh, techniques that could have protected the state in a bigger way, uh, and that she she faulted him for not doing that, inept and lazy. Uh, that's starting off with pretty tough language, Raul. And you saw the you saw the Kemp campaign come swinging right back on that. You know that's going to be when it comes to the response to COVID. That's going to be, you know, some of the basic arguments is, you know, what what leader Abrams laid out. Also, the discussion around local control uh, of what local governments can and can't do. And, and, you know, Governor Kemp is 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 he is going to keep laying that that he was able to keep Georgia's economy effectively running. That's that's going to be the response from uh, a governor, Governor Kemp's uh, folks when it comes to this. And then also 
there's going to be a big discussion about COVID response in schools. You're going to see that debate that you really mushroom um, around those things. Now, will, will schools still be a big discussion point by November? I don't know, but that's what's going on right now. Riley, uh, Governor Kemp was quick to respond uh, to Abrams. Uh, he uh, did an interview yesterday with our friend Chuck Williams down at WRBL-TV in Columbus. Uh, Chuck asked him about the Abrams comments, and uh, here's what the governor said. Well, she obviously doesn't like local control. I think most educators I'm talking to, our superintendents, our teachers, the local school boards that are elected to represent the schools, they want local control. I believe that they know our kids better than Stacey Abrams or state government does, and certainly better than the federal government. Uh, but that's who she is. You know, she's a big government person. She wants government to make every decision uh, in your life for you. Riley? Riley, you're, I think you muted your phone. No, okay. Still here. <laughs> there you are. There I am. Sorry about that, guys. So um, I think that's an interesting comment back from Governor Kemp on that, because critics would say that he was not for local control during the pandemic. Right. He even went so far as to sue the city of Atlanta for instituting their own mask mandate. So I think that's kind of a, a counterpoint that's easily pushed back on that. But it will be interesting to see how Governor Kemp responds to come some of the more um, health care policy arguments that Stacey Abram has, because I think at this point, she's running a very strategic campaign. And I'll point to something different from Medicaid expansion. In her first ad, she talks about medical debt, right, and that she paid off all this medical debt in the time that she had after her failed gubernatorial bid. And, and the federal government, the Consumer Finance Protection Bureau, actually just released figures that there's $88 billion in medical debt now um, across the country. So that's something very tangible that she can point to and say that, you know, Republican leadership hasn't done enough to stop this. But to see, we'll, it'll be very interesting to see how Governor, comes, Governor Kemp comes back against those kind of points. Um, Greg, uh, as long as Riley brought it up, why don't we listen to the introductory TV spot that Stacey Abrams' uh, campaign uh, put up. I find it fascinating, as you'll all hear, uh, because she talks about her life after losing the governor's race in 2018. Uh, here's the commercial. In the last four years, I've seen more Georgians face pain, face challenges. When I didn't win the governor's race, not getting the job didn't exempt me from the work. And so I didn't quit. I got back to work paid off the medical debt of 68,000 Georgians, helping small businesses stay alive, making sure they had the financing they needed, and putting money into the pockets of families, trying my best to make sure that every Georgian had access and opportunity. I was raised that when you don't get what you want, you don't give up. You try again. You try because it's how things get better. It's how the world moves forward. I don't quit because Georgians deserve leadership and that's what a leader does. That's the job of governor. I want one Georgia where everyone has the opportunity to rise together and everyone has the opportunity to thrive. And now, let's get the job done. So Greg, one of the things I find interesting about that spot is it addresses something that uh, some people could easily say about Abrams. You've been out of the arena for four years. You haven't been in the legislature. You haven't been in a position to affect change in government for four years. Um, so uh, are, are you up to the challenge? And what she says to us is, 
I've been there in the last four years. I have not been uh, uh, sitting in the sidelines. Yeah, you know, Bill, she had this really interesting line um, at her West Atlanta <laughs> rally on, on a couple of days ago where she said, I did the work, and now I want the job. Uh, we all know her visibility has, has exploded. You know, her profile has raised even higher since losing that 2018 election. Um, you know, she's been on talk shows and she's been in Washington and she's been, you know, she's a household name among political junkies um, and even those who aren't. But what she's trying to show is that she's also done the behind the scenes efforts, right? Um, that her, through Fairfight, her, her political organization, um, she's paid off medical debt, that, that she's been working to, um, to help voters feel uh, that their, their voices are being counted during the redistricting process uh, and doing census. Uh, the census count. All these issues are part of her argument that she's even more prepared now than she was in 2018 to run for governor, um, and that she's learned lessons um, from that narrow defeat. Um, uh, you know, a defeat, of course, that she never conceded, but still a defeat nonetheless. She's saying she's stronger after that, and now she's more capable of being Georgia's governor. Uh, Stephen, before we get to a break, I want to ask you about just to quickly two points out of all this. Number one, Stacey Abrams talks about Brian Kemp. She has not a word to say about David Perdue and his race for governor. Um, and uh, n- number two, well, I'll tell you what, just take that up before we get to our break. Yeah, I mean, since, you know, the day that Stacey Abrams said, you know, I acknowledge I'm not the next governor, uh, but I will not concede. Uh, she has been gearing up for a rematch against Brian Kemp. And the polling and, you know, anecdotes from around the state and fundraising suggest that Brian Kemp will still be the Republican nominee for governor. And so I I think both Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp are gearing up for the November matchup because it behooves both of them to start setting the stage of this is what it's going to be, battle over the soul of the state, the future direction of the state for the next decade, et cetera. And, you know, she doesn't need to wade into the bitter Republican infighting because that's taking up all of the oxygen itself. So she's positioning herself both through her ad and these tours. And even when she first announced that she's trying to position herself as the candidate to have a referendum on how Brian Kemp has served as governor the last four years. And so that's what you're seeing with this campaign rollout. All right, let's do this. Let's get to our final break of the show. When we come back, uh, state Republican Party chair David Schaefer's had a bad last few weeks. Uh, We're going to talk about that after these messages. So, Riley Bunch, a few weeks ago, GOP state party chairman David Schaefer was called before the uh, January 6th House Investigative Committee uh, because he had been the leader of a so-called alternate slate of electors uh, that on December 13th, the day that the actual electors, the Biden electors, since Biden won the state, met at the Capitol to certify the vote for Biden. Uh, but uh, but uh, Schaefer and his group uh, decided to file as alternate electors just in case Trump won the election. There are questions as to whether what they did was legal or not. All right, so we've talked about that on the show a number of times, but it's something that is still having an impact on the way people view him. But then this. Um, the other day, the, um, the Russian delegation to the United Nations 
uh, called for a resolution that essentially condemned Nazism. Now, we know what it was really about was the fact that Putin is insisting that he is trying to clean the Nazi control of Ukraine. Um, uh, the United States and Ukraine, of course, voted against this resolution. Most Western countries did as well. But David Schaefer sent out a tweet that said, I assumed this was a lie or a hoax, but it is not the fact that the United States and Ukraine voted against this. The Biden and Zelensky governments were the only two votes against a Russian resolution condemning the glorification of Nazism. What? Riley, uh, there are those who uh, said immediately, some in his own party, this was uh, perpetuating Russian propaganda. Yeah, and I think that this is just kind of another just example of the extreme fringes of the party that Republicans are up against, you know, not just in Georgia, but across the country. And I, I would go back to point that local party leaders have a lot of control and a lot of influence over kind of their grassroots local bases. And when you have a significant party leader like this, um, making these claims and can, can signing on to these conspiracies and these false accusations, you know, it, it, it's a detriment to the party and leaders like Governor Kemp and Ralston and Lieutenant Governor who have been very outspoken, Ralston especially, about the conflict that's going on right now in Europe. You know, Ralston almost every day since Russia invaded has said um, that, you know, uh, um, voice support for Ukraine and said that people, and there was also debate over when Marjorie Taylor Greene was at that rally where they ch chanted Putin. You know, lawmakers at the state house were really upset about that. Um, so it, it's just, you know, David Schaefer's actions are such a depiction of the struggles that party leaders are up against when it comes to this kind of fringe side of the party. Yeah, Riley's exactly right. I mean, about, about a half dozen Republican officials sent me that tweet Sunday morning as I was doing what I usually do Sundays, which is dealing with ferrying around kids to different events. And it took me about five <laughs> minutes of research to realize how wrong or just how um, the context in which David Schaefer was tweeting was, was off because since 2005, the U.S. has voted against this resolution. Um, this is something that, that under the George W. Bush administration, Obama, in Trump's administration, um, UN, U.S. ambassadors to the U.N., have voiced opposition to because of exactly this. It, it is seen as a, a way to denigrate the neighboring countries of Russia, not just Ukraine, but others, which Russia is accused of harboring Nazis. And of course, we know that the president of Ukraine is Jewish, um, that there is a vibrant Jewish community. And of course, you know, there's, there's concerns about neo-Nazism as there are in other Eastern European countries and beyond. Um, but this, is, this has been the pretext for Vladimir Putin to invade Ukraine, which is saying he's denazifying the area. And when we hear um, Republican officials or just politicians in general try to amplify those lies, that, that, that propaganda, it's very concerning. And fortunately and frankly, we have not seen that much among, uh, among Georgia Republicans. I mean, beyond Marge Taylor Greene, who yesterday sent out a tweet thread um, you know, amplifying that propaganda about Nazis in Ukraine. Beyond that, we haven't seen many leading Republican officials do that. Uh, Stephen, before we move on, um, I don't know the dynamics of the Republican Party uh, right now, the state Republican Party, and, you know, uh, how much power Schaefer really exerts over them. Is there reason to think that his uh, leadership 
uh, is is going to be uh, jeopardized in some way uh, by all of this? Well, David Schaefer was reelected the chair of the Republican Party after Republicans lost the presidential race, both U.S. Senate races, right. control of the U.S. Senate. And so I don't necessarily think this is something that is going to jeopardize his leadership for now. But it is something that I've talked to Republicans that say that how he has served as chair and, you know, the current slate of pro-Trump primary challengers that are trying to unseat popular incumbents could end up being enough of a factor that could jeopardize Republicans' chance of winning in November. Because when you have the leader of the party, uh, state party, giving these kind of unforced errors, it opens the door for somebody like Stacey Abrams to come in and more easily pick up votes or to depress Republican turnout, like we saw in 2020 and 2021, with uh, this sort of uh, the infighting that goes beyond the typical primary of who's got the best ideas to lead the party. All right. Um, Raul, before we finish, and we're running a little short on time, we don't want to forget that today is the um, marks the one-year anniversary of the, Atlanta, the spa shootings in Metro Atlanta 8. Uh, Asian Americans, uh, seven, I think, Asian Americans, one uh, who is not Asian American, uh, killed. Uh, there's a, a Speaker Pelosi is doing an event on Capitol Hill to commemorate the day. Lucy McBath will be a part of that. There's a, a commemoration here in Atlanta. Um, get, just talk about it with us for a moment. I think it was, uh, speaking as an Asian American reporter, it was a wake-up call <sighs> for us as reporters on how much we're covering, and in my case, our own communities. It was, you know, we, I think we kind of realized, you know, we, we cover our day in and day out stories. I cover my political stories. Um, you know, a year ago uh, on GPB Lawmakers, we brought in all six Asian American lawmakers to have that conversation, because at that point, we've talked to them about just regular bills, but talking about that Asian American experience. Also just talking about how Asian Americans are covered in the media uh, for example, in a crime. So going to be definitely watching today's commemorations. We have one that's going to be at the, at the freight depot. It was moved from the Capitol because of the rain today. Uh, that's going to include the mayor of Atlanta. So that's going to be, you know, watching those commemorations today, but realizing the work reporters need to do and, and politicians need to do when it comes to Asian-American issues. And in this case, uh, hate crimes aimed at Asian-Americans. Yeah, um, and I think we're all uh, thinking about the families of the victims, and and as you Absolutely. said, Raul, the impact it had on the entire Asian American uh, community, not just here, but really around the country. We're out of time uh, for today's show. Raul Bali, uh, Stephen Fowler, uh, glad to have you with us, uh, and of course Ra- Riley Bunch and Greg Bluestein. I enjoyed having you on the show as well. We're out of time for today. Back with a brand new show tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. See you all tomorrow.